Welcome to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, Spine Number 48, Unbreakable, and the films of M. Night Shyamalan, featuring Philly, Dead People, Superheroes, Aliens, Mel Gibson, Those We Don't Speak Of, Narfs, Honeybees, Dumb Cartoons, Will Smith, Old Folks, A Beach That Makes You Into Old Folks, James McAvoy and Drag, and Mr. Glass. Martin. Yes. They call me Mid-Size Sedan, son. another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight. And joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, do you see dead people? Sometimes. So we're doing the films of M. Night Shyamalan, kind of using Unbreakable, let's say, as a jumping off point, because is it fair to label it our shared like favorite of his, or are we going to figure that out as we go along? I mean, it's my favorite. So Yeah, I think so, too, <laughs> revisiting all of these. Yeah. Um, because that's the thing is that like, I remember seeing the sixth sense summer of 1999 in Delaware when I was down at Dewey beach, you know, taking a break from like the sun and and ocean and everything. And there was like a little strip mall theater. I believe it was called the midway theater that you would go out. It had like eight or nine screens. And I'd been going there and seeing all the summer blockbusters. Like ever since I was like a little kid, like I saw like speed there and clueless, um, the firm with fucking Tom Fuck Cruise. Yeah. Like a lot. Yeah. A lot of stuff you wouldn't even like think that like a 12 year old kid. Would that was the violence five for me in Wisconsin where I, okay. would, where I would see like I saw speed there yeah. you know, where our vacation home was. So, yeah. Well, and then I go and to, to take a break from the beach and to check this like spooky ghost story out that keeps getting all these awesome reviews. But the one thing that, like, even the reviews are kind of pointing out is they're like, you got to see the ending. Like, the ending's fucking crazy. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. I like Bruce Willis. Like, he hasn't done anything for a little bit that, you know, I've seen him in. But I'm willing to, like, jump in with both feet and then was completely blown away by this movie because, like, not only was it a ghost story, it was sort of unlike anything I'd ever really seen before just in terms of, like, sheer construction because – like people talked differently. There was a, a very deliberate pacing to like the dialogue and the way he like rolled out the scares. And frankly, when you did get to the actual ending, it's an incredibly moving movie. Now at 40, this movie takes on a totally different meaning because what I see now, instead of like the crazy twist ending and the I see dead people like Haley Joel Osment, who's still like fucking amazing. He's great like, in this these, movie. It's, it's in, like seriously uncanny, like how what a performance he turns in, especially as such a young kid. This and AI, he's just insane in. Like, AI is yeah. off the fucking charts. Yeah. I saw that on thirty five millimeter, like 
the week after my wife asked me for a divorce. Oh, that Jesus. Was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not to bring up any sore <laughs> subjects, but I saw it at the Ritz. Well, because I was going down to the Ritz as more or less like an escape. And it was back mm. in the day when the Ritz would play you like a fucking triple feature of like random shit where I remember one day going down there during the same week uh, and escaping from my life by seeing Videodrome at like noon on 35 Jurassic Park what? on 35 and then wait for it the day ends with last house on the left on 35 Jesus let's talk about a bizarre triple feature but, but I'll all tell great you, yeah and also didn't think about my life once no <laughs> it took me to a bunch of different places but AI was the same thing is that they were just randomly playing a print of AI at the Ritz and I saw it and was just a complete blubbering mess because again He's incredible in it, and he seems to give himself over, even at such a young age, to his directors and, like, delivers, like, very distinctly different performances based on what he's he's asked to do. And that's, like, a real actor stuck inside an 11-year-old body. But at 40, watching The Sixth Sense take all of that out of it, the thing that I realized is that M. Night doesn't really care about the scares. Like, he does but this is literally a relationship movie about a guy who just wishes he could talk to his wife. It's, you know, a couple of things off that. And I'll, I'll give, uh, if, you, if it's cool, my background of when I kind of yeah. first got into Shyamalan, but also then the comment on that. It's not cool. Uh, but I, um, when I saw Sixth Sense, I mean, cause it came out, it came out the spring and then it played into the summer. It was definitely in theaters for a while. So I remember uh, it was a, it was the spring of my freshman year, 99 um, of high school. And people were talking about it, talking about it, talking about it. And I was already a contrarian little fuck at the age of 15. And go figure went in with a chip on my shoulder of like, oh, how good is this? And I think I knew it was good, but I was just like, oh, it's fine. It's not as people say, right? I liked the twist. And then when Unbreakable was coming out in uh, fall of 2000, around Thanksgiving time, um, everyone was, like, talking about it and really getting excited. Like, oh, my God. And the trailers were very horror, more like horror kind of trailers. Because it literally came out, like, a year later. Yeah. Like, it came out that fall, I believe, in, like, October? Uh, it's, it's November. So Is it, it November? It's a, it, was, it was Thanksgiving weekend, I'm, I'm pretty positive of. Because I was reading an interview with Knight where he talks about writing unbreakable while he was editing six cents simply because he didn't think they would ever let him make another movie again. And he was like, I got to make as many of these as humanly possible because like, who knows if they'll let me back behind a camera. Well, I'm, I'm glad he did. Cause you know, I, I was not excited for unbreakable because I was like, okay. And I had already forgotten that actually six cents was good. And we were um, at my aunt's house for Thanksgiving. My brother goes, my parents are going to see a movie today. Let's go see Unbreakable. I'm like, like whatever. I was already being an asshole, right? And then the opening, Meh. the opening, you know, kind of crawl comes up. It's about comic books, and this is before the deluge of comic book films we got in the late 2000s and to, to, to today. Um, I was already a comic book fan. My brother and I look at each other like, "Oh shit, is this about comic books?" And then by like minute ten, I'm in. And my brother and I—that was actually an early secret handshake for us of like. People were mad. Also, I liked it more also because it was not a hit. I remember Monday at school, all the kids are like, what's that superhero bullshit? Because they wanted another Sixth Sense. Um, but it's interesting because like what always hit with me, um, you're talking about family and family dynamics, which run throughout his films. And these simple kind of like 
um, character stories within these kind of genre films. But for me, it was always the theme of purpose. Like all of them are about a character or many characters accepting their, the call of the hero, right? You have that with, you know, um, uh, Bruce's character in Sixth Sense, obviously Cole's character of once he accepts that he has a power, he uses it for good, very much like David Dunn in Unbreakable. Now, that's how I've kind of seen the film for a lot of my life. But like, as you said, you know, watching this film at my age of 39, um, I was so much more emotionally moved by all of these films, even the ones that didn't work completely, but especially his first four films hit me really deeply, especially the family stuff and especially the stuff in Sixth Sense because of, I never was affected by kids in danger before or kids hurting, but like now that I have a nephew and niece and I want them to be spared all the horrors of the world, watching this now I haven't watched since they were born. It really affected me. And I found it absolutely terrifying and, but also beautiful that he just, how he helps this kid because beyond this, you know, him trying to connect with his wife. It's also him trying to undo the failure of the, of the, you know, the kid he failed the Donnie Wahlberg character. Right. And this is my second chance. And you see the moment where Cole draws the sword from the stone. He's the, he's the boy, again, the hero who came from nothing, you know, who, who is now, this, he's a stable boy, and now he's the king, and Cole is now seeing that in himself. It's on the nose, but it really fucking works. The sentimentality, like it with Stephen King, when it works in these films, it really, really works. Well, the, the most key line in the movie is actually probably one of the most stilted ones in terms of delivery. And while we're, like, lauding Haley Joe Osment, some of Knight's dialogue would be difficult for any performer yes. to to give with any kind of real let's say emotion or even a straight face he needs but, william hurt for everything <laughs> oh my god william hurt so i can't wait to talk about the village Me too, yeah william hurt is just fucking cooking in that oh, movie so hard he's aligned he knows what Shyamalan's doing yeah in that movie he and joaquin both are on the same wavelength of like oh this is what we signed up for yeah but watching uh six cents when Haley joe osmond it's towards the very very end and kind of the scene that almost renders the twist ending in that movie completely irrelevant is the car scene between oh my God. Haley Joel Osment and, and Tony Collette as his mom. And he turns and looks at her and he goes, I'm ready to communicate with you now. And that's the whole, that's the, the, the core uh, message of the movie is that it's literally about people who want to talk to each other and they can't. It's about like Bruce Willis is estranged from his wife. There's a reason why they show the, the first like four minutes. They're madly in love. He's won an award. He's, you know, the joke, he's talking like Dr. Seuss when he's drunk. But he's been distant. Also, she, she's like yeah. saying, now that you've won, I want you to back You're away. You're bringing it back. Yeah. Exactly. And she thinks she's finally won. And then the horrible tragedy when he gets shot in the beginning happens. And then he's just at arm's length from her the entire time and trying to re reach out and trying to reconnect. And at the same time, He's a child psychologist taking on this case of this little boy who exhibits all of the same behaviors that Donnie Wahlberg's did, who then ends up, you know, as an adult breaking into his house and shooting Bruce Willis. And what a fucking opening scene. savage, like, opening. I remember yeah. seeing that in theaters because I was about 16, 17 years old when this first came out. And that like got under my skin right away to where that was the moment that set, made me sit up in that dark Delaware movie theater and be like, oh, what the fuck am I watching here? Like this, this is like legitimately disturbing. And then, you know, Willis uh, 
takes on this case of this little kid has all the same kind of habits and, and, and behavioral uh, dysfunctions, let's say. Um, it more or less becomes like his way to like help someone so that he can come back and speak with his wife again. But he, he wants to essentially heal this kid who all his mom wants is to hug her kid. Like yeah. that's it. And Tony Collette in this movie. Oh my God. Number one, amazing. Number two, uh, my like South Philly late thirties, early forties, like dream girl to where I'm just like, I, I want the trashy, like been along around the block mom who like has the kid kind of dread. There's that great party scene where she clearly like, I love the way that she's dressed differently. Yeah, than other moms. Exactly. And like, they're like kind of upscale Manny Unk, Uh, if you've ever been to Philly, Manny Young's a very affluent, uh, neighborhood in there, uh, moms or, or mainline moms who like are husbands of like, or wives of like doctors and lawyers and stuff. And here she is, she's probably worked like as a waitress or yeah. like, she's a got three jobs. She keeps secretary. saying, she, yeah. yeah, exactly. Just so that she can make ends meet and take care of this kid. And like the whole time, all she wants to do is find out that her little boy's okay. And like hug him and like communicate with him again. And that scene in the car is like, melt if you don't like cry or get affected by that moment like you're pretty much dead inside my my note here was the scene the car is so amazing period the true climax period because yeah. like I, I was I'm you com- don't even need the twist e- exactly and i think that's what rewatching these films i realize is that i'm it's so it's so kind of disappointing that that's what he, you know, became associated with. Like, obviously, the famous sure. robot chicken. What a twist. Bullshit, right? But it's true. I mean, he was – people were expecting that from his films. And Unbreakable, we'll get to that later, but is, is more of a, like, okay, that makes sense. It's less of a twist and more of a, like, oh, now I, I'm getting even more context. Unbreakable still played like a twist. Oh, oh absolutely. But when it's still – When they reveal the whole Mr. Glass thing at the very end, like, the way he cuts it. Is it's supposed to be this big reveal? And honestly, you know what movie like I think borrows the most from it is Saw. Oh yeah, it's like even like, the music, the dun, dun, yeah, the dun, jigsaw yeah. reveal at the end of the first Saw is almost beat for beat the same thing as the Mister Glass reveal in Unbreakable. Well, and a lot of his early films like um, have the exact same structure, especially the right. end, right? Because they all are the hero's journey in their own way. And you, they even say in a later film, The Visit, where the reason the daughter and the son are there to visit with the, who they think of their grandparents is to get on camera them forgiving the mother, right? And so there's a right. moment where she says, I forgive you. And the daughter's editing it and goes, that's the elixir, which from Joseph Campbell is what the hero is after, right? And so for Tony Collette, it's on the it's it's on the nose, and I see you. You know, for you guys aren't can't see Jacob right now. He's rolling his eyes. But well, I'm thinking of Lady in the Water, oh, which takes that concept and like literally names a character's story. Yeah, it goes all the way with it, and we'll we'll get to that. But um, poor Bob Balaban in that movie. <laughs> well, that's a whole thing too. But <laughs> no, I agree because I think that that scene, as you said, like I want to communicate with you now. It's it's a hard line, and it's also in keeping with the way that Shyamalan writes children. Um, he writes children like adults, all of them. Um, uh, well, not as the probably the, the most realistic one is probably Unbreakable. Um, I was gonna say, like he's clearly mo- modeling the the 
Sun and Unbreakable after Hilly Joel Osment, like right down to the way that that kid looks. The only thing I remember him from is that he's a gladiator as well. Yeah, that was, I was gonna say yeah. he was the little kid from Gladiator. He's the killer in Mystic River too. Yep, he, that that he is. Mm-hmm. But uh, he he seems more like a normal kid. But that's part of the whole story there is that it's about a boy looking up to his dad and wishing that he would be the hero that he always wanted him to be, and then. Willis's character realizing in order to basically reconnect with my family again, I have to be a hero to my son. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you definitely get, I mean, but a lot of the films though, you just vary the kids is where similar to like Stephen King, when he writes kids, especially lately, it's like, dude, you are so disconnected from the youth. I think by the way, the kids talk in old, how the kids talk in visit is, is almost unwatchable. Like, the visit works because of the actually the horror. I don't like the visit, and I know a lot of people love it. Rewatching it, I did not like did not like it at all. I think comparatively speaking, it felt like a return to form. But I think the real return to form is probably Split, which is the next film after that, um, where it felt well, more. I think there's a debate to be had about the the usage of the term return to form with Shyamalan is because he's such a rigid formalist, like right down to using very gifted cinematographers to to shoot all of his movies um starting with tak uh fujimoto from sixth sense yep um that's jonathan sarah yeah yeah and that's jonathan demi's longtime uh director of photography for like silence of the lambs and stuff sixth sense looks like silence of the lambs it is literally framed and colored the exact same way that whole sequence when uh hilly joel osmond goes to the wake for the little girl who's been yes uh, it's like clarice with the cops right exactly yeah Yeah. he even uses that kind of fisheye like point of view lens of people looking directly at the camera, especially while they're wa- the the father's like watching the videotape that he discovers, looks straight out of Silence of the Lambs in a Jonathan Demi movie. This is why we're friends, Jacob, because we're, we want, <laughs> we disagree sometimes. We also see the, this. I was like furiously taking notes during that scene. I was getting so excited because I was like, "Let's Fujimoto looks a lot like Demi." Oh shit, he's really going full that, and a lot of centered shots too. Like, uh, yeah. which is super Demi. Um, who shoots Unbreakable? Uh, it's Eduardo Serra, yeah. um, who did some uh, some Edward Zwick films. And then we get Deacons for The Village. Yeah. Which is An incredible insane. look. And then Christopher Doyle, fucking Wong Kar Wai yeah. cinematographer for, for Lady, Lady in the Water. Water. Which is a beautiful film. Yeah, for as, that's what I was going to say, is for as fucking bonkers as that movie is, Lady in the Water is still redeemable for the Christopher Doyle photography in it. Yeah, actually, so that came out the year, the summer between my junior and senior year, and I used that, the American Cinematographer issue, as reference for how I shot my first film in senior year. So I was just like... Did you use no normal camera setups too? Because that's the one thing about that movie is that I was even watching it. I was like, damn, if I was Chris Doyle, I'd be like, night, can we like chill out, dude? Like, can I just do one master shot like for once? Well, and, let, and let's talk about that because one of the things I kept noticing and, and a lot of the problems that I think Shyamalan has had as he's gone through his career is that a lot of it has been based on him going too far with his ideas, the dialogue being stilted. I think for the most part, except for we'll get to later, his blockbuster attempts, um, he's never lost his 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 talent for blocking and staging um, for the most part because he honestly, again, reminds me of like a young Spielberg in that um, watching the Spielberg documentary, why he was so famous was because of his kind of instinctual filmmaking, right? That he knows where to put the camera. 
And I think specifically in The Sixth Sense, the first three films feel very Spielbergian to me um, in terms of, obviously, families, you know, which is also Spielberg, broken families, divorced families, and but also the where he puts the shot and the sense of metonymy of the part representing the whole and knowing exactly where the camera should be. The opening scene of Unbreakable with the baby Elijah in the store feels like a Spielberg scene to me. The way he's using the mirror, everything, and not cutting the wonders of Spielberg. Did I go too far with that? I don't know. He thinks or wants to be Spielberg, but yeah. he's actually De Palma. That's my take on Knight, is that he even talks about in interviews like the thing that made it made him want to make movies was seeing Star Wars at like seven and then seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark and like so he fancies himself he wants to make his jaws like he considered because the, the one thing that we we often leave out when talking about Shyamalan's movies is that there's a movie before Six yeah. Sense there's technically two there's Praying with Anger which is more or less like his his rough like I don't want to say student movie because I think it's still a professional production like after he graduates from tish at nyu but then he makes a wide awake for the weinsteins and how he talks about wide awake is pretty amazing because he thought weinstein was going use another one who he thought weinstein was going to tank his career because he got there he's going to make this super personal movie about him being you know an indian kid at catholic school in philly and then Weinstein more or less butchers the idea, butchers the movie in the edit, and then locks him down to where Miramax owned all of Shyamalan's, like, basically uh, uh, projects as a director. If he directed anywhere, he had Whoa. to direct it for Miramax. Like, he talks about the original contract. And the reason that he wrote The Sixth Sense was that they didn't in the contract control his writing. So his motives were, I'm going to write a screenplay so fucking good that I'm going to sell it to another studio. And they're going to be like, now we need you to do whatever, because he also uh, writes Stuart little and co-writes Stuart right. little the same year in 1999. So he does that as a means to basically get out from under Weinstein because he was like, dude, like I thought I was going to be the next like Kevin Smith, or Tarantino, or yeah. you know, take your pick as to These personal which stories. Aut, like personal auteurs that like Weinstein empowered during the '90s, and he ends up being like a prisoner to, to Miramax and that company, and then he writes Sixth Sense and Buena Vista and Disney and stuff love it so much that they're like he has to come direct this movie too, and and Weinstein ends up letting him go out of the contract. Um, but he was like, he cites Jaws. Is he was like, I'm gonna write my Jaws. Like that's Sixth Sense, and he does. He yeah. breaks free completely and changes the culture. Yeah, he's um like this movie made seven hundred million fucking dollars at the box. No, office. it was it was a runaway success. And I mean, I remember like because Unbreakable was still a hit. It was not as loved by fans, but Signs was a monster hit too. I remember when Signs that was a huge hit. Yeah, and Signs is an active response to the criticisms of uh, Unbreakable too, because the thing about Unbreakable is that it starts the trend in Shyamalan's movies that the second movie are almost usually ex like in conversation with the first uh, and like yeah. finishing the thoughts that are brought up in the first. And where I'm going with the whole De Palma comparison is that where De Palma would sometimes work 
these autobiographical kind yeah. of pieces of himself. Like basically, as we've referenced before, Keith like Gordon, Keith Gordon yeah. in Dress to Kill is basically just playing young science geek De Palma who uses a camera to catch you know, a killer here, which is based on De Palma's first film of using a camera to catch his philandering uh, father in Philadelphia. But like... Which you steal for Fablemans from Spielberg. Exactly, you know? too. Yeah. But if you watch... the, I agree with you in terms of like how Shyamalan blocks and stages stuff is that it's very formalistic. It's very natural and almost like intuitive in the way that Spielberg's movies are. It's not coverage. It's all... That's yeah. the thing I was going to say is that he shoots movies with an eye for anti-coverage or basically against coverage. Like that whole first sequence in Unbreakable when Willis is on the oh. train and the camera's literally placed in front of the two seats and he hits on that woman, takes off his wedding ring, hits on that woman who sits next to him and the camera just keeps panning back and forth. It's borderline Godardian at times and that would be a thing that De Palma would do because De Palma's big mantra was always coverage is a dirty word. And, like, he never shoots a movie traditionally really going forward because, like, and really kind of keeps going harder and harder because Signs might be the most traditionally shot, but even that, like, is a very idiosyncratic-looking movie. Well, and there's a lot of headroom in that, too. I mean, to think, again, Fableman's John Ford, he's, like, put the horizon, the bottom or the top, you know? Yeah. They're all, like, and that's also Fujimoto again. Yeah, you know, shot that as well, and now, that's an interesting point. I mean, well, he didn't. Either way, if he's pulling from Spielberg to Palma, he's stealing from the movie Brat Generation. Oh, one hundred percent that that era. And I think what's interesting, there were so many people, obviously, we've talked who want to be the next Spielberg, and like JJ is the king of pastiche, but he doesn't know what makes it tick, and JJ doesn't have the formalist understanding of filmmaking, um, like like Spielberg, like even Shyamalan does. And I think with my writing partner Yvonne, he was in town, and we watched Signs because we were researching a script we were writing that took place in one location and we were talking about, there's also something to the, at least the, especially the first four films, they're so fucking confident. Like they have the confident of a hungry filmmaker who's like, I know this is good. Like those, especially like I mean, village, I think is again, really not only I know this is good. I know this is me. Yeah. There's something it feels very to honest his too. voice becomes the brand. Like, M. Night Shyamalan, after The Sixth Sense becomes, like... M. Night Shyamalan's yeah, like Unbreakable. Yeah, exactly. He's on in league with John Ford, with Carpenter, with Hitchcock. Spielberg, Hitchcock. Like, his name's above the title now because he's a master of suspense. Yeah, and he, you know... But so what we're also talking about is, like, a lot of that voice is his view of, like, families and humanity. It's like, again, to the Stephen King point, it's like... What I love about King is not even about the horror. It's the, his view of American characters and how they interact with one another, working class characters, families, and family dynamics. Like, you see what King's interested in beyond monsters. And I feel like the same with Shyamalan. It's like, you take away the twist and, like, the monster, and it's some really interesting character work. That's why the happening, I think, does not work at all, is because he tries to make at once the monster complicated but simple, and it just doesn't work. And then you add in a horrible performance by you know Mark Wahlberg, and an inexplicable performance from Zoe Deschanel. They are who might be worse in that movie. It's funny because I feel the same. Like we were talking earlier, not to jump ahead too much, but I was watching it today, and I was dreading. I hadn't seen it since it first came out, 
and the opening scene is so strong. The, the opening deaths are so Shyamalan and so like formalistic and smart. You're like, wow, this is and terrifying and really scary. Like the whole, especially the scene with the uh, the, the um, construction site is some of the best stuff he's ever shot. Now, then Mark Wahlberg shows about three minutes into the movie and he's like, does anyone care about the honeybees? Then you cut to Zoe Deschanel. I don't know what movie she thinks she's in. Wide-eyed and just dumb as fuck. And also and just in the center of these, like, leering Shyamalan close-ups, too. Like, his formalism and his kind of idiosyncratic camera work isn't doing their performances any favors. Well, he he requ- he can get some amazing performances out of great actors, and we're going to, as we move forward, there are a lot of examples of that. Um, to look at signs in particular. So um, I think Gibson has been rarely better than he is in signs. I think he is. He's incredible he's, in the movie. And there's one shot in particular, and you probably know what I'm talking about. It's a silent moment, but it's with Shyamalan in it. And it's when he goes to check on Shyamalan's character, who's the man who killed his wife accidentally in this car accident. And I was watching this with my writing partner, and we're just kind of, taking notes and just, and then we both just shut the fuck up for this scene because you Are have you talking about the moment where he apologizes yes. for it. And Gibson, like this has to essentially choke back like years of rage, and five emotions yeah. pass across his face in and probably a six second. And he so, just moves his head inside of like the car frame to where you're just watching him work through it. I'm getting chills, like talking it's about really it. It is. It, he got this. And, and later in the film too, I think the moment when they're in the basement and his and his son uh, Rory Culkin is is having an asthma attack and he's holding him and trying to make him breathe and he's cursing God. It's fucking like Virgin Spring fucking Bergman shit, you know, the end of Virgin Spring where it's just this like, and then some of these things with another actor wouldn't work, you know. She requires great actors to make these things play, and I think that Signs one of those examples of like that's when that he knows how to use movie stars too. You know, it's not weird method shit. He knows how to, like, say, this guy's a fucking star. That's what I'm going to make him work, you know? Because he's also utilizing, like, an aspect of Gibson's uh, persona. Yeah. Let's say, is that because this isn't fucking Riggs, you know? Yeah. This is the dad from Ransom, just in an alien invasion sequence. This is the guy from, like, What Women Want. Like, he's just, he's the handsome, down home, kind of everybody's into him. Uh, pastor who, you know, is is struck down by fate, more or less. And Shyamalan really plays into that. It's strange to talk about it now, but wholesome thing that Gibson had down pat of, like, a guy, and maybe wholesome is the wrong word, but a guy who, like... Guy next door, dad next door. Exactly, dad next door, maybe has some secrets in his past because Ransom he does, like, a little bit. But, like... You can relate to this guy. You could like have a beer with this guy. Like he taps into that. He's not the crazy cop from Lethal Weapon anymore. Where like he does that a lot, and it kind of comes in twos in the same way that like to jump back to, to my point about how his movies are kind of in conversation with one another yeah. is that Unbreakable, David Dunn, is an extension of the the child psychologist that Bruce Willis plays in in Sixth Sense. Because their goals, even though he's trying to be a hero to his son, he's also trying to reconnect with his estranged wife, with uh, Robin Wright Penn. 
and get back to the way things used to be. They live together, but they live in, you know, they sleep in separate rooms. He's looking for a job in New York and wants to move out. Um, he's working a dead end job as a security guard at the University of Pennsylvania Stadium, which what's up, you pen. Um, but Willis plays it in such a morose, sleepy fashion that would almost be it would almost fit into like what we would characterize his roles like later, which no disrespect intended because of all his diagnosis yeah. and what he's, he and Very his family are going through yeah. like right now. But like there was a point even before all of that, where we kind of wrote Willis off as like, uh, he's just a dude who shows up phones in geezer teasers, kind of half assed. <laughs> Can we use that? Any that phrase anymore? Oh, well, I- <laughs> And again, no disrespect. I mean, that is, that is, I think it's funny, but I've actually thought about the fact that they were called geezer teasers, and now that feels like terrible and wake. Right, and I did, and I apologize. And, and for Don't the record, apologize. I love Bruce Willis so much. He was my favorite actor for like yeah. fifteen years of my life. Yeah, Joe Hollenbeck like completely changed like the way I look at it, action. Die Hard was forever. my favorite movie for like half my yeah, life. Exactly. So, yeah, exactly. But like Willis plays it in this very sleepy, morose, sad fashion, but night taps into something with him that we've never really seen before or since, you know, like they tried to replicate it. Like you talked off mic about Mercury rising yeah, and how like they tried to pair him with another special needs kid, have him do kind of the nice guy, like hero thing. But it just doesn't work because what Knight is interested in isn't necessarily the heroism or like the hero's journey. He wants to talk about a guy who just wants to touch and talk and say goodbye to his wife again because one of the best scenes in all of Unbreakable is that date night moment when he takes Robin Wright Penn out again and they try to reconnect. A shot is amazing. Yeah. That wide that with that background. Top. Oh, yeah, my God. Yeah, and it just keeps zooming in. Jeez. But it has one of the most disarmingly, like, honest moments where, he, you know, they're doing what essentially a couple would do on, like, a first date to where they're like, what's We're your favorite music yeah. or whatever. You know, and he asks her, like, what's your favorite song? And she goes, Soft and Wet by Prince. And he's so taken aback, like, wow, like, I didn't expect that. But it's just an amazing moment of, like, a husband realizing he didn't know this one specific thing about the person he spent so many years with that just felt so fucking real to me. But that's the stuff that Shyamalan is interested in. And, like, it's the reason why I think that Unbreakable is kind of like his seven-year itch because – like De Palma, again, he's working out feelings and stuff that's inside his head through these kind of genre movie constructs. And he's been married at this point because Unbreakable's 2000. Mm-hmm. So you're seven years into his marriage with uh, the woman of you know that he still is married to, has kids with, everything. And you can tell he's he's got like big wife guy, but also like big possibly divorced guy energy going on because it's all about a dude who who's looking for something else, looking for something to like reignite that spark in his life. And it comes in the form of a fantasy, but unlike the Billy Wilder movie, it's somebody else's fantasy. It's his kid's fantasy and it's Samuel L. Jackson, you know, Elijah glasses, uh, fantasy. Yeah. And that's, I love, uh, I love that. And Elijah price, I should say he's Mr. Glass. Yeah. The only like 
place I would disagree. Cause I, I, I think it's all there. Um, is I think there, there's definitely the micro view of the family that he's interested in, right? Of like, he wants to be the hero to his son. Um, and he wants to connect with his, connect with his wife. Right. But the way to do that is with the more mythical side of the story. No, but that's what I mean. He's wrapping these things inside of these constructs. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I think. So I guess we're, we're definitely agreeing is that, again, the sense of purpose that you have, you know, Elijah's speech about the most terrifying thing in the world is not knowing your place in this right. world. It was a great scene. And, Sh- and and Jackson's also great in this fucking movie. Like, let's not sleep on that. Blows the fucking doors off. He, he's amazing. And, his, of course, his clothing, he's already a super villain. Like, the purple and, like, and of the course, wheelchair. Sean, Shyamalan is so good at using color too of like these the like to- totemic things and yeah the blue and the purple but there's you know I feel like it's it like you said it's all wrapped together where uh, I'm not going to name a name but I have a friend who I remember when um, he went through a divorce and he kind of told me later he's like I thought she was the problem but it was my problem and that this feels like that where the reason he's not connecting with his wife and son is he's unfulfilled in life. Like he made a choice. Yeah, that's what to I mean. Not he's looking the, for something to, else. To not be the hero that he he's he should have been the hero since he was twenty. When he was he knew he was strong. This is this is like if Peter this is basically the story. If Peter Parker was bit by a fucking radioactive spider, it didn't do anything for twenty fucking years. You know what I mean? It feels like that where well, in order to settle down to a domestic normal life with Mary Jane. Which now like he is resentful of because yeah. he's not been able to be his full self. And him him being able to be his full self, but also the complexity of like don't tell mom at the end is like, I'm happy, but don't tell her why. Well, you want to talk about a moment of fucking oh, silent acting that's insane. a lot like the Mel Gibson moment in Signs. That moment after yeah. he... Uh, basically takes responsibility for saving that family's lives and like pushes. I'm like, I'm fighting back like tears, like talking about it. He pushes it across into the corner of the frame to the corner of the frame. And the kid looks at it and he just silently puts uh, the finger to his lips and, and the kid's like eyes well up with tears. It's just, and then he says, incredible. Yeah. You were right. Just mouths it. It's just, silent storytelling that's amazing but like Shyamalan has such a way with tapping into actors and getting them to not feel you know how actors talk about like there's this great uh, story that Anya Taylor-Joy tells about working on Split with him that like changed the way that she approached acting forever is that she was really trying towards like one of the big emotional moments there with her and McAvoy and Mm -hmm. she's crying and he's in her face and everything. And like, she talked about how tonight it just felt fake and how his one little note to her changed the way that she approached playing these characters forever is that he said, don't cry your tears, cry the character's tears. And it just like suddenly the scene all clicked for her and she was like, I never thought about it quite that way until he talked to me that way. Oh, that's so beautiful. Cause like, again, I mean, we, we made a lot of points already about just like the way he works with actors and he just gets these performances and it almost in a Tarantino way. I mean, it's funny that you mentioned Tarantino earlier, but a guy who like knows how to have pay, play people against type right? and get some ridiculously amazing with some very interesting dialogue. It's not always naturalistic. Well, and you also know? pluck people from like, not quite obscurity with Joaquin Phoenix, but Joaquin Phoenix at this point when he's in signs and then uh, the village is that he becomes kind of like the the next Bruce Willis for him, 
is that the only thing we really knew Joaquin from is Gladiator yeah. for the most part. And then a lot of like 90s movies, like shit like Clay Pigeons. To Die For. To Die For. He's which good are, in that. Are, well, Clay Pigeons <laughs> yeah. is also quite yeah. good. Um, you turn the fucking weird ass mm. Oliver Stone movie, and one of our favorites, Eight Millimeter. Eight Millimeter, yeah. like he's just bopping around. We kind of think like maybe he's gonna live in his brother's shadow forever. Like he might just be kind of this weird, like gangly character actor on yeah. the fringes the whole time. But then he taps into something with signs and makes him, you know, with Merrill this wholesome burnout. Who lives with his, you know, and obviously without purpose, <laughs> without purpose, and honestly, like he reminds me of. So when I was, I used to work at this other bar before what I do now, and I had a couple uh, regulars, these two Mexican guys uh, named Ruben and Mario. And Ruben's, I hope if he ever hears this, I don't think he will, but if he gets mad for me for sharing his life story, I apologize, Ruben. But his wife died of like stage four cancer mm. and he had, you know, I think five kids with her inter including like, and you know, grown sons, but like his daughter right now is like 13 or 14. He has an older daughter in like her early twenties, but they, those two still like live with him and everything. But like when he lost his wife, he thought like he was going to die. And, Mario, his best friend, came in and essentially, like, took care of the kids and, like, helped him and just became, like, his brother. And that's what the relationship between Mel Gibson and Joaquin Phoenix yes. feels like here to me is, like, a guy who, like, moved in. Might have been a little opportunistic in terms of, like, I, I kind of washed out of the major leagues in baseball. I don't have anywhere to go, so I moved back home. But, like, my brother's, you know, wife dies in this horrible car accident and he needs somebody just there for like emotional support to take care of the kids and everything. And then they just never left each other. That's what Merrill feels like. But like Shyamalan taps into this other side of Phoenix where he's funny. He's kind of like a little dopey, but like, he's just a good natured weirdo. Who's great with the kids and listens and talks with his, cause they're brothers, right? Yep. Oh yeah. And then it's like, and they just share like this bond together. And honestly, like, the chemistry that he and Gibson have is really, really fucking good. Only bested by the chemistry that he has with Bryce Dallas Howard in the village. Dude, the scene on the porch. Oh, I know, dude. Where they <sighs> talk about, uh, I'm going to get choked up talking about this one too, but where he talks about wanting to dance on their like wedding day is as good as anything as, and as romantic as anything as I've ever seen in a movie. Well, and village and we both had an experience rewatching it. I hadn't seen it since the theater. Uh, actually, no, I watched it. I think I watched it in COVID, but it had been, a, I hadn't really thought of it. And I had never gone back until we did it for this podcast. Yeah, came out 19 fucking years ago. That yeah. It's insane. But I was still in college. Yeah. I was after my sophomore year of college. And this this really, watching it, this is now one of my favorite Shyamalans. Because I, I see what he's going for. And also just like the Deacon's cinematography. You just can't. Oh my God. It's insane. But the scene for me in this movie, it's also them. Is a silent scene but it's also that fucking amazing James Newton Howard score. His oh. maybe my favorite score of his. It's I mean it's all those violins are fucking incredible in that. For me it's like this the fugitive and Batman begins are like my James Newton Howard trio but like I mean Sixth Sense Oh also I mean, actually everything he's all done All of his Shyamalan in, scores are like 
bonkers great. Lady in the Water's gorgeous too. It's yeah. so romantic. But the scene where they've connected, and we hear finally that the uh, those who shall not be named are coming into the village, and they they rung the bell. And she's blind, and she sticks her hand out into the darkness and says, "Oh, and when he grabs, he'll come it. for me." And the music rises. He comes out of the the monsters coming out of the blackness, and his hand grabs her, and it goes slow motion, and they're moving towards the frame as the camera kind of moves back. Fucking Deacons with firelight and the music, and it's just like one of the most romantic, beautiful things I've ever seen. Again, two scenes that are just really hammering down heroism and simple heroism and beauty. And when he when he does it, he he dude, it, it's out of the park, man. Like well, there's few people who can do it today, like he he can do it. I want to continue the idea that these movies are also like in conversation with one another because signs and the village are very much his post 9-11 movies. Yes. They're about families dealing with a global crisis, uh, kind of existing in a state of consistent dread and paranoia and what what do we become what do we become what feelings are bred inside of that and where signs is a very micro look at that where it's literally about one man wrestling with his faith and like you said like all like Shyamalan's really big and not only finding purpose but like a lot of people have talked about how his movies could border on religious at certain mm-hmm. times, particularly with Signs and recently uh, Knock at the Cabin. Oh, yeah. I don't think Shyamalan's a, a necessarily a religious guy or making religious movies. I think he's making movies about belief, which is different. Yeah. It's about finding something to believe in or fi- having a character believe in you. Like the sixth sense is literally the big like turning point is a kid getting a doctor to believe that what he's telling him is true and not mental illness. Unbreakable is getting a guy to believe in his own superpower so that there's balance in the world between good and evil. Signs literalizes that idea where it's about a guy who loses his faith in God and his belief in God because his wife is killed in a tragic car accident. And it literally takes the end of the, or the potential end of the fucking world for him to believe again, to find a thing to believe in because, and it's all contained in that amazing Mel Gibson monologue where he talks about- Oh, that's on the couch? Yeah. Oh my God. There are two types of people in this world. There are people who believe you are alone and everything is a coincidence or happens by chance. And there's people who see everything as a sign and something to believe in and don't believe that they're alone. Which one are you? And that's what he's asking. The village takes that and kind of spins it off into the idea to where signs is about a guy looking for something to believe in in the end of the world. The village is about all of these people who have experienced like this intense personal emotional apocalypse because they lost a loved one of some kind or something terrible happened to them personally that they literally construct 
this framework of belief around themselves to where it governs their entire community and it takes to the point someone, where people can die and it's okay. Yeah, you can yeah. die and it's okay because we don't want you to to break the rules that we've constructed to basically hide us from pain and outside influence. And it literally takes somebody so in love with another person to be like, I need to break this structure of belief so that I can save them. He turns his own ideas and spins them on their their own heads and completes a conversation that he almost seems to be having with himself in the wake of one of the greatest American tragedies in history. Well, and that's I I love that point. And looking specifically at the village, like – Again, he likes these characters who come from small beginnings, that the blind lead character. You think in that film that Joaquin's the lead character until the midpoint. And then yeah, he's until that, you realize it's her. And one of the most terrifying scenes, uh, again, when we talked before about it's not just about the horror, but the guy fucking knows how to do a really effective horror scene. Oh, and, yeah. And when it, pan, when it pans away as... Um, uh, fucking Adrian Brody keeps stabbing fucking Joaquin like awkwardly with this like shiv is is genuinely shocking. Um, and well, the first moment when he he sticks him in the stomach down. and all the sound drops out because he's just mid sentence and he realizes what happens. Yeah. It's another amazing moment of visual storytelling where it's just. Joaquin looks down and notices the knife is in his belly, and then he falls to the floor. Well, there's a there's a line, um, if it's cool, uh, from the village that I wrote down. Um, that so basically, again, they're they're fighting against like these. You start to realize before you know the twist of this modern day, and these people have left behind quote unquote the cities, right? Which is they make it seem like it's all oh, they left New York, Philadelphia, 1800s, where there was murder, um, and we're going to go live in the colonial lands. Um, but you start to realize it's like, no, it's more than that. There's this, And again, we mentioned earlier how amazing William Hurt is in this movie, because again, William Hurt is game, and he understands like what Shyamalan's going for. And, and his, he leans into the staginess the, of it And all. the awkward, the way that like people speak, goes, I would risk everything he does these crazy like pincher pauses i would risk all and he just really goes for drags the dialogue really hard that scene where he fights with the other like members of the council but there's in that scene he says i'm going to let ivy leave and you know and he's and they were like well she's blind and he says quote she's more capable than most in this village and she is led by love the world moves for love it kneels before it in awe like i'm getting chills saying that stuff and like Again, like Shyamalan, like Stephen King, they're really they do a lot, but there's these gems that show through where you're like no one else could have written that line. It's so perfect. Well, and it's just so romantic. It's That's gorgeous. where Shyamalan is at. Is that it feels like he's pulled himself out of whatever funk he was in personally during the Sixth Sense and Unbreakable, and he's embracing love just as much with romanticism as he does with violence in terms of the camera like kind of panning away that scene how it ends on the porch when Joaquin Phoenix and Bryce Dallas Howard like finally kiss and the camera just drifts off to the left into the fog it's just it's an incredible he he's breathtaking with the choices that he makes sometimes as a visual artist no he like and, and the village, like, there's these... And it's also really scary. Like, everything of her alone in the um, the woods 
Uh, because again, like they, he loves that. I mean, he so knows the simplicity of an innocent character, a, a quote unquote helpless character in the face of evil. Right. And for me, I think of the scariest, one of the scariest scenes in Sixth Sense is Cole when he's in, um, he's hiding in his little tent. And I remember the first time I saw it, the, the, the um, clothespins being snapped off the top of his fort. And and he's so and he's breathing the cold air out feels similar to the moment where she can't see anything. She's broken her stick and the monster is breathing right fucking behind her. But even in the darkest of moments, it's like fucking Samwise Gamgee with Shelob and fucking Lord of the Rings. It's that level of heroism. And again, with the hero's journey, you go into the forest, you go into the cave she comes back with the fucking elixir. I mean, she goes and gets fucking antibiotics. Like it's about as literal as you can get with like her being the hero's journey. Um, I, I love the mythic qualities to his films. And like I said, the romanticism is just really, especially this time around. I don't think it hit me before this kind of viewing cycle we've done for these movies. Since we're talking about mythical stuff, can we talk about lady in the water real quick and how fucking batshit insane that movie is it is wild so here's my theory on lady in the water you know what lady in the water is like is when you have a next door neighbor who you're like that guy's got it like everything's made like i i like knight a lot he's good looking he's personable he's polite he's got a cute wife he's got a couple kids he's got this fucking awesome job like, he's made his mark on the world. He just seems, you know, I see him at church every now and again. He just really seems like he's got it going. And then you have a barbecue one day, and you invite Knight over. You're like, oh, come on, we'll have some beers, just hang out like regular dudes or whatever. And Knight comes over, and he just, like, downs, like, six Mick Ultras real quick. Gets a little tipsy. And then he starts like just ripping off like crazy conspiracy theories about like Chinese weather balloons. And he's telling you about this manifesto that he's writing at home that he thinks is going to be like really big on Reddit. You're like, man, Knight's a nice guy, but he might be fucked up too. Like Lady in the Water is like the work of a guy who's totally bought in and gotten high on his own fucking supply and now literally casts himself as crackpot Jesus. Yeah, so rewatching this movie, I hadn't seen this since the theater. Uh, I actually loved it the first time I saw it. I loved the, the look. Obviously, it's gorgeous. We've said before, Christopher Doyle's cinematography is absolutely gorgeous. I think Giamatti's really good in this movie, too. He is not. Um, the scene where he cries, I think, and is like holding her and healing her, I think it's very good. Yeah, that one's not bad, but there's a lot of bad stuff well, in that performance, too. Yeah. I don't. I think it's... Kind of similar. There, there's there's a downward spiral that happens from this movie through the happening, and then to his two big studio productions that aren't like technically like his movies, uh, After Earth and The Last Airbender, which he even has copped to. I sent you an excerpt from an interview where he basically was like, "Yeah, you know what? Like people just said I might be, you know, getting too into myself, and I'm arrogant and doing whatever." and you know, I wanted to try and be accepted and, and work inside of the system and stuff. And I realized that there's people that are way better at that type of storytelling than I am. So I went back to making my own movies. But, like, dude, Lady in the Water is still one of his own movies. And it just – I I can't even explain what happens in this thing without cracking up. There, Okay, you're right. And there are a couple things I want to focus on. 
first off, I I wrote down this feels like his Neil Breen movie. In every <laughs> in every Neil Breen film, he's the savior of the universe. Only right. he can do it. Fateful Finding specifically is Lady in the Water. Totally insane. Movie. I showed my mom that over Christmas, and she loved it. I mean, for the right reasons. Um, and so you have that element. What are the right reasons to to enjoy Fateful Findings? Well, that, that it's you just connect that it's the the frequency of a totally fucking like deranged individual. It's like Lovecraftian because you're staring into like the abyss of of something, and you're like, wow, um, fake beards and but um, invite Neil to the barbecue too, and then let him and Knight oh, talk. Man, well, and, and yeah, to your point, I agree. Like when I even seen this in the theater, I was like, wait, you're writing yourself in as a major character who believes that his artistic work is going to save the world. It's basically going to inspire the next Martin Luther King. Yeah, and and I'm you're going to have to die. And he's like, okay, I accept that responsibility. Oh, my God. And it's funny, I don't think like his earlier films, he's even making films that are even close to that or that that theme. But it's like, oh, you believe in purpose, and you believe that your purpose is like you're saving the world. Even if you don't, that's the message you're sending. And on top of that, is the Bob Balaban character. Now, Bob Balaban plays a film critic. Absolutely amazing. It's And he's good in it. He's good in everything. What right? a fucking... No, I don't mean Balaban. Just the inclusion of this character is one of the great kind of petulant tantrums that like an auteur has ever thrown publicly. Literally, this guy is... You think he's this moral compass who understands narrative. And so Cleveland, the Giamatti character, continuously goes to him and says, Hey... You know story because you're a film critic. Who should I look to to be the guardian for this woman? I'm, I'm, I'm going to you. And later on, they said, that's all wrong. Who did you ask? Well, the film critic. Then the film critic at his own party, which he really wasn't even fucking invited to. He's in a hallway, and he's doing this ridiculous scene where he's looking at a monster and saying, well, this is a, com- this is a, this is a, t- uh, a family movie, and so I will die and learn my lesson. This is not a horror film, and it's ridiculously instilted, but it's also Shyamalan saying, hey, critics, suck my fucking dick. I know you uh, didn't like The Village, but you can fucking lick my grundle. I mean, it is so, like... It's such a fucking temper it, tantrum. It's insane. But, it, you know... And then he kills the film critic. <laughs> and, he, and he just completely... It's one of the few, few actual murders. It. The one, one of the few actual horror scenes in the movie is the critic being killed. Um, you it, know what this movie is? I realized it's like South Philly Inception. <laughs> it's like if you if you shot Inception but kept it all in true Shyamalan style, because one of his his big trademarks are these like chamber pieces to yes, where we're either yeah. like trapped inside of like a house with a family or a community like the village, like the the. Uh, Tenants in this kind of rundown apartment complex are our community that he, let's see, very colorfully paints. <laughs> right down to a few weird, like, Asian stereotypes and stuff. But, like, it's almost like he was like, I'm going to do, and this is before Inception, obviously, but he's like, I'm going to do a movie about my style of storytelling and how I deconstruct it. But it's all going to take place in this place where you probably could like be drinking 40s around the pool too yeah it's a crushing yingling 
It's a it's a really I mean rewatching it I mean it's really fucking messy it like you said it kind of <laughs> it's not good it's but just it's what, interesting it, well, it is interesting as when you're doing an auteur study it's the kind of film where you're like oh you're just saying the things you're actually interested in like again all the purpose stuff is like the theme the whole theme is every person realizing their role in the narrative which again sure so it's it's all still consistent it's just that it's not a good story beyond that and also like as good as Bryce Dallas Howard is in Village I think she's kind of intolerable in certain scenes in Lady in the Water as this like wayfish you know kind of fairy character doesn't really work no it is bad Um, Um, should we we, we, like push through some of the ones that we're gonna I don't think we really need to talk about the happening or after earth anymore or even airbender because like even he was like I tried to do a thing and it didn't work yeah and honestly when you watch those movies you can't figure out why he made them particularly after earth and last airbender because they feel so anonymously directed there's nothing really nighty about them for lack of a better term I guess like it just it feels like a guy literally giving himself over to the Hollywood machine and it just chews him up and spits him out to where he then has to self-finance and control his own projects and comes back with Blumhouse with the visit, with the visit and then his real big comeback is split. Yeah. Uh, the, the single location, kind of schlocky serial killer movie where James McAvoy plays a guy with 24 personalities who keeps women hostage and sacrifices them to an entity known as the beast. It's as stripped down and fucked up and weird and high concept, but yeah, it, it gets incredibly high concept and he applies again, his, his age old, like kind of persona shredding uh, approach to acting with James McAvoy, because like, if you think about it, you've never really seen McAvoy do anything quite like this before. It's like a professor X at this point, you know, yeah, it's like, like in a Marvel series him and McAvoy goes full tilt in this fucking movie for better. Honestly, mostly for better. And some people I know don't like how over the top it is, but I like that he leans into the pure camp aspect of it. Well, and this one felt, we mentioned earlier about, you know, return to form and definitely, I think as a filmmaker, not even as a writer, because the visit, it's like it, it, it's found footage, it's, it's found footage, which takes away his ability to do his kind of camera work. He tries to still have scenes that are framed like Shyamalan. It's like, you know, you can't do that with found footage. Yeah. Right. And then, um, dialogue working, his dialogue being very flowery sometimes and being cinematic with a capital C very, yeah. And, and working in a very classic Hollywood feel, does not work with found footage. You need naturalistic dialogue and also as awkward kids, like they're really annoying, but split. It's really, again, like you said, a chamber piece in its own way of, you know, these girls being trapped in this killer's kind of uh, torture chamber um, as they go through meeting him with different, you know, different characters, versions of himself. Um, and split was one where I was like, like visit was better than the, the blockbuster ones, right? Okay, cool. At least we got some good horror, good some good horror moments with the grandparents. Um, and then it split. I was like, oh, okay. Like this is, this feels good, you know, to me at least as a viewer. Well, it also felt like him stepping back and losing a bit of the pretension that people were knocking him yes. for, and just making a a down and dirty genre riff that's kind of gnarly, kind of uncomfortable, but like just totally works and and still 
uh, include some of his idiosyncrasies as an artist. Um, were you at the Fantastic Fest screening of this? I was. Were you? No. So that's the story I'm going to tell. So Fantastic Fest is the first time this is publicly screened, right? Secret screening. It's a secret screening. Night really shows Really early. You know what fucking movie I saw? And, you know, I actually like this movie, so I shouldn't present it this way. But I saw The Girl with All the Gifts. Oh, cool. That I adaptation, which is pretty yeah, good. I saw it there, too, at a different screening. Yeah. But I knew that Split was the screening because somebody had told me beforehand. And I was like, oh, a new M. Night movie? Meh. I can skip it. So I wasn't there for the first time that it was ever revealed because they specifically asked the audience, oh, yeah. right, to not say anything about the end end of uh, of split to where it's revealed that it actually takes place inside of the unbreakable quote unquote universe because David Dunn, Bruce Willis, uh, shows up in like a, a very much knowing wink to like the Marvel post-credit stingers and stuff is that he shows up and kind of alerts you that, oh shit, this is all happening in the same universe and then sets up the stage for glass, the big unbreakable sequel that includes Elijah Price, you know, Samuel L. Jackson includes uh, James McAvoy and then brings back uh, Bruce Willis as David Dunn and even brings back uh, his son, the same actor as his son. Yep. As like his Oracle character, like man in the chair. Exactly. Kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, Robin Wright Penn is unfortunately killed off because she was not going to sign up for it. Oh yeah. Uh, but it's, what do you think of glass? Of, I, I of think split I, or glass. Glass. Um, I really hate glass. Um, I you so really hate it. I really, 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 really hate it. So, so I was at the premiere, as you said, of Split, right? And or the you know the unveiling, and because I like Split, Split like well enough. Well, and I'm a I don't love it, and I am a monster fan beyond as a Shyamalan fan. I'm a monster fan of Unbreakable, sure. and so I've been like, oh man, I would kill for a sequel of that. But I thought it would never happen because what Shyamalan's career had done, right? It kind of tanked. And, well, and also two different studios on the rights. You're you're dealing with him bringing a character in from a Buena Vista yeah. Disney movie into a Blumhouse Universal, Universal production. Because the story that he tells is that David Dunn wasn't in the original draft. Like, basically, it comes from Kevin, uh, the, the serial killer that McAvoy plays, was supposed to be an Unbreakable he, the original oh. drafts actually had Kevin and he didn't know how to integrate that character in. He kept feeling like, ah, this is really just a story about, you Split know, personality about, well, no, about two guys about David Dunn oh, gotcha, and then yeah. Elijah price. And like this Kevin serial killer guy that just doesn't really fit. And it's kind of just drag every, everything else down. Maybe I'll just cut him out and I'll save him for hopefully the future. And he finally gets to make this movie, but the original draft of split, he doesn't write in David Dunn's character at all. Um, it just ends the way the movie ends. You know, it's a straight up yeah. serial killer movie. And then he wrote and shot the scene with Bruce Willis and put it in because he basically went to Buena Vista and asked them verbally. He was like, Hey, I have this idea. Like, do you guys really care if I put this character from Unbreakable in? And Buena Vista was like, yeah, we don't give a shit. Do whatever you want. Yeah. So he went, shot the scene, didn't tell Jason Blum or the other producers at Blumhouse, then screened it for them the first time. And they were like, what the? They basically did the same thing the Fantastic Fest audience did, which was completely I lost my and mind. lose it. 
And then they looked at him and they're like, well, you realize you can't fucking use this because, like, we don't own this character. And Knight was apparently like, oh, I went and asked him already. So, like, we're all good. <laughs> well, and it, I mean, this was maybe this was my favorite experience seeing a, a film at a festival. Not knowing, like, anything yeah, about it. Yeah, especially as a, as a secret screening of just, like, it being a good movie and then that twist. Because, again, I texted my brother and I said, look, I'm not telling you. I just saw Split. All I'm going to tell you is you're going to love it. So I said, I'm not going to, and it didn't come out. This was September. It came out in January. Yeah. They saw it super early. And the fact that the fantastic fest audience was able to keep that secret, pretty admirable. Well, and it's cool. And it's a good crowd. You know, we were all like, look, I want people the same experience. I did. I didn't tell anybody, Um, but glass. So they, um, another Alamo event did a, a, a day early, before the weekend before Glass came out nationwide, Alamo, because they're friends with Shyamalan, they have a relationship, did a across Alamos across the country, um, a trilogy, like a three part screening. So yeah. I saw Unbreakable on a 4K, um, Split on 4K, and then you're going to end the day with Glass. And then it had like, you know, basically you're there for like six hours. When my buddy Andrew, and we're both big fans of Shyamalan, and you go from like unbreakable, of like fuck, this is still as good as it ever has been. It looks great on the big screen, great 4K transfer. You get to split, like, oh man, okay, it's not as great as I remember. It's good, but it's, it's trashy. Good, but it's trashy, but like, you know, without the twist. It's tw- fun. Now that I know there's what's coming at the end of the twist, I'm like, all right, fine. It gets a glass and it starts off really strong. And it felt like, oh, cool, this is going to be like, you know, this is like now him 20 years into his mission. He's got his son. Like, they're really like doing it. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. And, you know, to your point, it's so funny. I didn't realize that that he had originally written the McAvoy character to be an Unbreakable because this film feels also like there's way too many fucking characters. The, the, the center is not there. It also feels like for a guy who did a superhero film when it wasn't cool, now to come back to one of the most popular genres in blockbuster filmmaking and have nothing new to say that hasn't been said on TV shows and movies, it felt like, dude, you, you're late to the party, man. Like It's the one time where he shoots himself, in, not the one time, yeah. but it's where his ability to read trends or be ahead of the curve, because let's face it, Unbreakable basically predicts our fascination with superhero movies yeah. that would take over like six years later. Yeah, it's, it's, the mu- same it's way months that, after like, X-Men, yeah. Like the village more or less gave birth to every uh, Eggers movie ever made in A24. Like that's the first elevated horror film. Yeah. Like it's, if you watch The Witch now, The Witch is the same fucking movie, only, you know, those we don't <laughs> speak of are actually real in The Witch. They're yeah. not made up. Like he's so far ahead of the curve that with, Glass, it kind of feels like an old dude trying to tell you what he thinks is hip with the kids. Like, that's the thing about Shyamalan is that he's kind of like a walking dad joke half the time. Like, his humor is shit that, like, you know, Tom Segura has that great bit about, like, you know, how uncouth and problematic, like, even his dad's, like, behavior is sometimes. Like, Shyamalan is the well-meaning, super nice probably like progressive minded dad who also will be like, I'm going to make fun of rappers by having a rapper in my movie called midsize sedan. He's my dad. I mean, like I remember when my dad first heard the term hottie, I was in seventh grade and we're all at a restaurant. My brother, my friend, Jeff, my dad and me, 
And our waitress walks up and goes, hey, guys, what a hottie, huh? Like, it's some secret fucking code. Yeah. I'm like, Dad. And he's a liberal dude. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, Shyamalan has definitely it's embarrassed his kids in public, like, numerous times. Yeah, well, and, and, and the kid in the visit. Same thing, this rapper kid, and there's, like, that awkward stuff. It's like, you're progressive, but you know that's still racist, right? That's still fucked up, right? Yeah, you still shouldn't say those things. But I don't mean anything by it. Just stop. Yeah, he's definitely that. And, and should we should we talk old? We can, but I, so here's the thing I was talking about earlier with uh, the return to form old to me is the true return to like literal form of what we remember M night Shyamalan's movies being during the late nineties and the two thousands during the golden period. Cause it's back to like this very uh, lavish cinematography. Yeah. Like big ideas, kind of pick, yeah, yeah, a, a super twist ending, great actors because he has fucking Gail Garcia Bernal and Vicky Crepes in his movie, yeah, like it's, Nat Wolf's really good in this. Nat and, Wolf's really yeah. good, so like he's really leaning in uh, to what he used to do, and like it's all based around like where he places the camera, how he blocks scenes, the the very uh, judiciously paced dialogue. Um, it's it's great, but it also, I think the twist in old completely like cuts it out. I, hmm. I just don't think it works for me at all. You just in terms of like it doesn't work narratively, or you just don't like it. I think it's just dumb. Yeah, like it's just when we. Well, I don't want to spoil it for anybody who's never seen old, but I think like all of his old school emotion is there though, because this is all again, the family shit. Yeah. All about families watching each other and expire in front of them and like having to deal with death in real time to where kids are dying. Parents are dying. And again, this feels like, cause Shyamalan's now dealing twice uh, with with elderly people, yeah. and I wonder if this is him moving into because he's in his fifties now. I believe he's like fifty three or fifty four. Yeah, he's more than seventy. Yeah, and I think he's moving into that state of his life to where like now he's still a happily married guy. I know his uh, oldest daughter, I believe, is making her first feature. She directed some episodes of Servant, his his yeah, TV show. Some yep. episodes of Servant, so she like she is like proof the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, you know, and like, but he's probably dealing with. His own parents, who I know that his dad is suffering from a similar form Ooh. of dementia that Bruce Willis is dealing oh, with, God. which makes that all the more like kind of empathetic. And I wonder if that's where old is coming from. It's, again, a guy inserting this kind of painful autobiography into his his you know kind of fictional horror show structure and talking about how hard it is to watch a, a loved one expire before your eyes. Well, and it's interesting to think about him. I mean, like his best films and his films that are so true to form are all like Twilight Zone episodes, you know, and, and very similar. I mean, I think if, if Jordan Peele is someone, he's the new Shyamalan. I mean, it's the very the same way his films are the same way his films are under the same banner too. same banner. They're both put out as like um, these almost like attacking a different subgenre of horror or of genre filmmaking with each film. Modern Hitchcock, uh, Rod Serling type. Exactly. It's a big deal. And they have a film. It's a summer event. You know, they're uh, people who are very much auteurs in their own way. Um, people of color coming from a totally different perspective. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and like Nope is so much signs. I mean, it's so similar about belief and about spectacle. True. The fucking farmhouse as the main location. Like that felt like very similar. 
You want to jump into our segment about uh, Knock at the Cabin? Sure. Cool. Talking about Knock at the Cabin, the latest from M. Night Shyamalan. Martin, I'm going to start with this. Have you read the book? Yes. Um, I actually, I'm, I think I told you I met Paul Tremblay um, at like a book signing for this, like in a heat wave in L.A. No one's there at Dark Delicacies. and No one uh, wanted to go outside that It day. was 114 degrees out. Like fucking wheels were melting on cars and shit. It was insane. Um, but no, I came in and he signed the book. It was like the coolest fucking guy. And I've read his other book, Head Full of Ghosts, before that, which Osgood Perkins was going to do. And then. Someone, oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Someone else, like, also kind of impressive is doing it. That, that script and book has been floating around Hollywood for like five, six years. But uh, no, I mean, it's, it's an interesting adaptation because, like, Shyamalan. It, it's a Shyamalan movie. You know? I've never read the books. I've never read any of his books, I should say, because. It's just not something that's come across my desk like I've always meant to. But it's weird because from an outsider's point of view who hasn't read like word one of Tremblay's novel, this feels like Shyamalan taking the text and being like, I'm going to make an M. Night Shyamalan movie out. It almost feels like David Pryor and what he did with like the source material for Empty Man, where it was like a jumping off point. And it's the same setup, but like. The movie is is very Shyamalan. To me, it feels like a, a complete spiritual sequel to Signs of of the one that's most about belief and disbelief, um, and getting also with the religious kind of side to it um, of believing in God, but also believing in the apocalypse, um, and also the one location, a family under really specific stress during a sense of Armageddon which runs throughout a lot of his films, but it, it felt the most to me like that. Um, and more than anything, this felt like the truest, like we, not to use this term again, but the return to form. Like this really felt like fully formed Shyamalan is back. Working like, with an incredible cinematographer again with Jordan Blaschke, yep. who shot like the lighthouse yep. for Eggers. And like, and that which cast, again, yep. yeah. And, but again, circling back to a guy who's now known for like, working with one of the kings of quote-unquote elevated horror, now with Knight, who made the first elevated horror movie with The Village, you know? And it yep. just, it feels right in a way. But man, 
those fucking close-ups. The opening scene is absolutely insane. Yeah, with Dave Bautista talking to the the little Asian girl in the woods and how it's told almost entirely in those like screen devouring extreme close-ups where everything around the actors' faces is completely out of focus it's super low all depth of you field. see yeah, yeah. all you see is their facial features and their tics and like they're almost talking directly into the camera like we talked about uh tak fujimoto you know shooting uh six cents and and how that movie reminded us a bunch about you know silence of the lambs and his other collaborations with jonathan demi but like this feels like the m night version of the 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 trademark Demi shot where he'd always center the frame yep. and they're talking directly. Like they're talking to you as an audience member. They're like interrogating your soul. It's the thing that makes silence of the lamb such a great fucking movie is that all of those centered interrogation shots, like it's you looking back at Hannibal Lecter while he stares directly into you. Like it's an incredible cinematic trick because they like Demi makes you think that he's like looking at you, but really it's, he's getting you to like empathize with this monster and see him like face to face and eye to eye only knock at the cabin. It does that, but he tilts it all. They're all cocked and off center. And it, it's just, it's crazy. Like it's, it's completely disorienting like for the first 10 minutes or so, because that opening scene goes on pretty long. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, and it really, a lot of his films um, have these longer opening scenes, you know? I mean, Unbreakable, very... Obviously, the birth of Elijah, but then the scene on the train is is long. Um, they feel like prologues. Yeah, the opening of Signs is super fucking long, where, like, you're you're learning. It's like the kids are already out in the uh, cornfield. They're like, Mom, they're like, Dad, Dad, you know, and Uncle Merrill. And there's, like, it's a sense of chaos. Like you said, you definitely have prologue before even Act 1 begins, and this feels like that as well because you're like, who is this girl? Why is she here? She hints that she has, you know, Daddy Andrew and the other daddy. You're like, okay, cool. And and then, yeah, the movie kind of starts in earnest, you know, and it, it really jumps in. Well, and it does the other thing with the tone-setting credits that Shyamalan's oh. so great at, like with the font and— Super Bernard Herman score. Yeah, the Bernard Herman score. But that reminded me a lot, even though, like— we're a little down on it, but Lady in the Water, how yeah. that has the entire like cave painting intro mm-hmm. that sets the the scene for like the theme of that movie of like, because that movie really is as much as we make fun of it as being the crazy Shyamalan manifesto film is that it's it's the the theme is pretty clear is that it's literally about the stories we tell each other, the mythologies we build and exist inside of, and then how they eventually do include us like we can become players in these these ancient myths like what he's doing from the credits on like you get it it all is of a piece it's just that that piece isn't very tasty let's say this he does the same thing where it's just apocalyptic like imagery all yeah. the clipping it's almost like john doe's notebooks in a yeah, way exactly. like that kind of mentality because it sets it up too that bautista might be insane and you find out very quickly he is not and that's something I 
was talking to my my writing partner about. He also watched, he's the one who told me that I was like it. I told you you would like it. It was like this domino effect. We were all gonna see it, obviously. But oh yeah. But we were. It was just like oh man, like he and he loved it. And he's a huge Shyamalan fan. And we were talking about how that's when Shyamalan's good at this. Casting is one of his greatest gifts. And Batista is the star of this movie. Well, and he does the trick again, right? Is yep. that he does the same thing that he did with Bruce Willis, that he did with Joaquin Phoenix. Yep. You know, to a, a different degree, Bryce Dallas Howard in really discovering her and giving her her kind of first role. But with Batista, he's doing something closer to the, the Bruce Willis stuff is that he's taking this hulking beast that we all know as Drax the Destroyer from Guardians of the Galaxy yep. or the guy who wore the little glasses and had the great scene in Blade Runner 2049. You know, like, we know him because of his physique, and then he's like, what if I let this guy, like, just deliver monologues and completely subvert his physical presence while exploiting it at the same time? Because Bautista looms so large in every frame from the very, again, that introduction with him and the little girl, it's the camera's like tilted up to almost like a degree where we feel like an ant on the ground looking up at this giant just staring down at us. You know, he really reminds me of that scene now that I think about it, the opening scene is it's the scene from Frankenstein of, of By the Lake. Oh, yeah. Where you the little girl with the flower and Frankenstein is this almost like a gentle soul that has the ability that which he does basically break her neck and throw her into the water. It's like that energy that it, it his physicality alone nothing in the dialogue you know they say a couple times like oh he's so big right but like for the most part it's all everything he's saying and doing is at odds with what he's able to do you know that you're like oh this guy could really just and toward obviously toward the end you get to see more of his physicality but it's this looming threat the entire time even when you're realizing he's not crazy you're like still if he had to he's gonna kill all of them you know, but Bautista's delivery. Oh man. In this film is so incredible because I feel like it's one of those performances where the guy's in on the joke. Like it, this is going to be a strange comparison, but we're both such huge Arnold fans that I think you'll get it. It reminds me of Arnold in twins. Yeah. And kindergarten cops. Yes. To where it was just like, he knows what the star if we image. took this beast and like kind of showed you like with twins, like he can be funny. And, and, with and kindergarten, a softer side, yeah, yeah. With kindergarten cop, it's like, what if we put this beast and gave him a bunch of kids to oversee and change their lives? And it's like, it's formulaic, but he operates inside of it. And like you said, like he's so aware of like how people view even like the image of him on screen that he works actively with his line delivery and that very, because every line he says is like, it's very pensive. It, it feels almost like patient and loving to a weird degree, even despite all of the, the horrible shit that goes down over the 95 minutes that this movie runs out. But it's like his greatest concern is that he keeps stressing I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't, I don't do even this. want to do this, but like I have to, because if I don't, the world will end. It's well, and it's such a, I mean, a well-shaped film beyond Batista too, because Rupert Grant's such an, such an amazing performance, but a great important character in the story, because 
he's the one who feels like the actual home invader because everyone else does not fit the home invader model, right? It's these women, except actually the girl with the wide eyes seems like very like like skittish. Um, the the waitress. I kept thinking of uh, the girl who plays Sadie in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's not her. But the performances were like super, like similar. Like her whole like freak out, like man, dig this. Just like oh, how yeah. she has. This oh, from very, Scream. Yeah, yeah, it has this very exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The Scream, which I love, but the minute she showed up in that movie, I was like, oh, she's definitely one of the killers. Oh. Like, there's no reason you cast her otherwise. No, she totally and she dies with my fire. You know. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, her death in that movie almost feels like a direct callback to Once Upon a Time. Hundred percent. Yeah. Anyone, totally, <laughs> totally different movie. It's just that she, those two actresses, and like their jittery, skittish, wide-eyed, like, wide-eyed performance style, like really reminded me of one another. Yeah, and you know, but, but Rupert Grant, it's such a great. Um, narrative device too that it turns out he is the guy who beat one of the the husbands in the past like it's true so it's like it helps kind of as a red herring of oh they are crazy this is all because they want to hurt us they want revenge and Grintz is very much playing this like he's like no I want to hurt people like I was called but I'm still a violent asshole and so like having him there keeps that tension up and then once he kills himself like oh this is a different beast because it's so it's that so, first death it's so confusing when they when it's confusing to watch in a good he way he puts the cloth over his head and essentially submits to being sacrificed at like this bizarre altar is like really i think one of the more upsetting things that Shyamalan has ever committed to film because again he uses this long close-up of like the guy pulling the mask over his face, crying through it, and then like the breathing deep, the and like you can in, see, yeah. like preparing himself to die. Like, and that's the moment where that movie becomes real for all of its kind of apocalyptic window dressing. Is that the moment where this guy gives himself over, and you go, "Oh shit, they're actually gonna fucking kill him," and they do. That you're you're like, everything has kind of changed now. Like this movie feels like fucked up and kind of dangerous in a way. Well, it feels like, I mean, we talked about, um, you know, I feel like Happening, The Village, are like his 9-11 movies. Both of them are very, beyond apocalyptic in their own way, they're about, like, communities and how they are faced by uh, kind of insane events that make them change the way they operate, right? It's like being overprotective or becoming the enemy in their own way, the way The Village kind of gets at, right? And this one feels like his COVID movie to me. And it feels like you have, again, the macro-micro feeling of signs, right, of this, this family. But with this one, what they do inside this cabinet, you know, actually directly, you learn, directly affects what happens in the world, right? And it has that feeling of what a lot of us did and are still do during COVID is like, do I protect me and mine or do I protect the world? It's that constant sense of responsibility that shifting of like, do I protect my kids and my loved ones or am I a citizen of the world? And it's, and it's so interesting to make them you know, this gay couple too because the one, the one husband is saying, they've never done anything but hate us. I owe them nothing. And, the, and it's almost other, and the other husband says like, well, they hate us, but I don't hate them. You know, and this is my, this is my chance. Well, it feels like the inversion of the village in a weird way to where the village was about breaking out of those belief structures in order to save somebody that you yeah. love. 
this feels like the COVID reinterpretation of that is that we're all locked inside of this cabin and having it be a gay couple feels like such a like uh, deliberate choice oh, yeah. yeah, because it's like they're sitting there being like and, and almost like adhering to the ideology. Like that was the thing during COVID too, is that like while COVID was going on, we watched all of this horrible image imagery on the television, not only of like a pandemic occurring, like Pulse nightclub. Yeah. Pulse nightclub, black lives matter riots, um, who is that fucking asshole from Wisconsin? Kyle fucking Rittenhouse. Yeah, Kyle Rittenhouse. Yeah. Like we were watching all these terrible things and we decided within our own four walls, what belief structure was right and true. Yeah. And that's what he's really testing is this idea of like, what would it feel like to be this gay couple when even presented with the apocalypse being beamed into your liv- literal r- living room? How would you either accept or deny that fact and be like, that's like, cause he's even saying like, I admit that this is true. Like what they're showing us is kind of proof because like every time they do one of these sacrifices, a new plague hits, yeah. you know, it's almost or like, is ended. Or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like you have the tidal waves, you have, what were the other ones? Tidal like, waves. There was the disease, basically the a, disease, a COVID another kind of COVID disease. Happened. But he's like, you've shown us proof every time this has happened, but you know what? I don't fucking care. Because the world has done me dirty and I've decided within my own four walls that no matter what information I'm presented with, my way is right and my way of thinking is correct. And that's what makes it kind of like The Village, an overtly political movie in a way. Yeah, no, and that's, that's well put. It's, like you said, the inversion of The Village. And, you know, you also that what wonderful moment where, you know, the husband, Jonathan Groff says like, if we don't do this, if one of us doesn't sacrifice ourselves or, you know, is killed by the other, like, we're going to live, but we're all that's left. And the other husband says, I'm okay with that. Right. And it's it kind of reminds me of episode three of Last of Us. Honestly, it's that very, again, another, in the same week, apocalyptic gay couple, you know, who are... That they're playing with their image again, too, with Nick Offerman playing basically more or less a gun nut shut in version of, of Ron Swanson, yeah. you know, but like, but again, that similar thing of you have the moment in that where, where Frank says, I need friends, you know, and what, and it's idea too, of like, no, all I need is you. And, and the idea of a relationship too, in COVID of like people who lived alone, you know, together, um, like I lived alone for COVID people who were in, in partnerships saying like, I need more than just you, you know, for to be in the world is not to just be shut off. You know, I need friends. I need family. And I think like, that's kind of what he's getting at too, is like, it's a huge question. It's a very big existential question is like, would you save the world and kill your partner? Or would you just be alone with them for the end of time? That's a big fucking like, what if not to quote myself because I hate doing that, but I, pulled up my letterbox review because the one thing I kept thinking about while watching this movie in the theater to bring it back to our boy, Todd field is I kept thinking about that monologue that Jackie Earl Haley's mom gives to him where she goes, you know, you're a miracle, Ronnie. We're all miracles because as humans, we go through our everyday lives knowing that the things we love will eventually die and be taken from us. And we still go on anyway. 
animals don't do that. And it this movie is almost like the cinematic uh, extrapolation of that thesis. The idea that like, what would you do? Like, you know, like Jonathan Gross whole thing is that he's like, I know one day you will die. I know that we're going to leave this little girl behind and like the world is going to keep turning and it's going to forget all about us. But I would rather not to go into too heavy a spoiler territory, but his whole point of view is like, I would rather give myself up and die because I know that's going to happen anyway. If I know that it's going to at least deliver a better future to the two people that I love. It's just that it's the, the classic Shyamalan conflict of faith and love and like, what would you do if you were confronted with something that you couldn't possibly believe in, but have to in order to save someone you love or, or, or become a hero or, or to just change the, the outcome of the world, frankly. And it's like, it's, it's one of his very best and I'll go out on a limb I think it's his straight up best movie since that like that four film, Six Sense, it's not even Unbreakable, close. Signs, and then uh, the Village. Yeah. Like this is number five. This if is the this fifth came right after that, it would feel perfectly in place. Yep. Yeah, no, I I I'm with you, dude. Like I see watching this in the theater, as you said, I think the credits really set the, like more than anything set the tone for what you're in for. Um, and I was like, oh, is this what we're doing here? And I loved, I loved even like the font he used. And I was like, oh shit. And then the way we talked, you know, in the earlier sections about kind of what makes him special. And a lot of it is his ability to do blocking and framing. And and a lot of these like more recent films, especially the visit being found footage, or the um or, you know, as much as I like split, it's more of a again, grimy, like one, like really kind of, it's about hallways, it's a different kind of shape. This one has the feeling, again, it feels so much a sequel to Signs, you know, and The Village, so those those two in particular. The difference know? between this, I think it's closer to The Signs than The Village in terms of like the way that he formally approaches it though, because unlike The Village, this never really feels stagey. Like he, yeah. may, he kind of avoids that to where the other movie that I, I've been thinking about in terms of the village was uh, hateful eight. Oh, interesting. Hateful yeah. eight, a lot of the time when you watch Very Tarantino's play, yeah. framing and blocking and like the way he uses, cause I remember the big outcry against that movie when it first came out is people were like, damn, you went out of your way to shoot on 70. Like and you're not outside one giant chamber piece that, yeah. Out, you know, Outside of, like, the intro and everything, we get no exteriors, no snowy mountains, nothing. It's like we're all inside of this one cramped cabin. But then you realize that's sort of the point in the same way that the way, like, that Deacon's approaches shooting the interiors in the village and a a lot of, like, the group meetings and discussions and stuff is that it's supposed to kind of feel stagey and old-timey because they've literally built their own stage to perform upon. Like, that's the point. Yeah, and 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 they are speaking ways they're not supposed to be speaking it's right. obviously modern day this one and this one does feel they're actively creating a fiction in real time well yeah and and signs is also like that is Shyamalan kind of at his most hitchcocky too it's definitely it feels like the birds to me it's like it's like, i rewatched the birds right after watch rewatching that so they're very similar films this feels of that type too right of a uh 
mostly one location, but still shot very cinematically um, with with uh, some really interesting editing, a lot of really like tense, kind of classic structuralist editing um, oh, that works really 100%, well. One hundred percent, yeah. But I mean. I don't know if I have a whole lot more to say about this movie because I don't want to completely ruin it for people, but it's just, it felt so fucking good to have a dude that I loved for a minute and then thought fell off also for a minute and I never quite regained that spark. Like this movie gave me that feeling again to where I went, oh shit, that's right. When Shyamalan's fucking on, like he's on and going back and revisiting these movies like again it's because i'm watching them at a much older age and stuff and i'm able to pull a little kind of different takes or maybe angles out of them but like i guess and it's a weird thing to say but like i forgot how fucking good he was and how good those movies are that when you just sit down and watch them that you're like damn this dude rips it off also like 106 minutes Across the board for yep. the first four movies. 107. You're he right. Gets yeah. 107 yeah. when you get to the village, but it's just like he he clocks it all in at the same exact time. He doesn't even hit like two hours. Like knock at the cabin is sub 100. And it it packs more impact in than like any fucking two and a half hour Marvel piece of shit could ever dream of. Like it's just The bar is so low right now, too, for like bigger movies, but like that does not take away from the genius of this movie, but it's no. like, again, to see someone like that come back, who's just like, no, I'm just a fucking filmmaker. Like, I tell and stories. And I'm just going to make my movie. I'm going to make my movie. It has a voice to it. You talk about Marvel being the voiceless fucking group of films. You know, there's, there's no there's no sense of auteur no, no, to any not of at it. all. And Even when the James you watch Gunn stuff, yeah. Night stuff, he literally is, again, the brand. Yeah. Is that you're showing up because you're like, I'm here for fucking M. Night to just do weird shit and I'm either going to like it or I might hate it, but I'll tell you what, I'm never bored. Nope. And I've been rooting for him for years. I honestly, I don't think I ever lost it for him. I think after Earth when I started to kind of really wane. I definitely did for a minute. Like, I totally fell off. It took me until, like, DVD or Blu-ray or whatever to even watch The Visit for the first time. Yeah. Like, I heard that it came back and people even were like, oh, it's pretty good. And I'm like, okay, dude, I've seen fucking After Earth. And also, like, Shyamalan... My big argument against going to see that movie in the theaters is that I was like, Shyamalan doing found footage? Yeah, like with the whole Jason point, Blum. Well, yeah. and like the whole point of Shyamalan is how like formalist and, yep. and rigid like his movies look is that he's adhering to a very specific visual style. Him going found footage just feels like him completely, again, like After Earth and the, the last airbender kind of giving himself over to a particular machine and letting it kind of chew up and spit out whatever style he had left. But I'm glad, you know, he and Blum found each other because they really like Jason Blum empowered Shyamalan and then Shyamalan in turn empowered himself to just make Shyamalan movies again. And he, that's great. He honestly clawed his way back. It's really been great to watch him like re-earn the trust of the audience too, you know, they're still assholes. We're like, Oh fuck Shyamalan. It's like, yeah, you loved Ant-Man, you know? So it's like, there's when it's just like, 
We should embrace weirdos. Fuck and yeah. he's a genuine fucking weirdo. Yeah. Like, and that's what's cool. But the thing about him is that he seems like a weirdo who would be like the best friend ever. Like he's super sincere. Yep. He's super sweet. People he's like working polite. with him. Yeah. He's uh, yeah. Obviously people love working with him because they come back like time and time again. And like, if you ever watch him with interviews, I, I said this in the last segment too, though, is that like even his whole approach to explaining his own like creative process and stuff is like he's super self-aware and he's also super open to like taking these criticisms and reading them. And even though he'll murder a movie critic in a, in one of his films out of rage, it seems like he still listens to what they have to say. And is like, Oh, well, you know, maybe I should consider that and like change my approach. And I mean, that led to the two biggest failures of his whole career, but you know, at least he listened. I'm remembering before I forget um, what the premiere of split at fantastic fest. And he came out, he was there. Right. And he was, he was obviously hidden. He came in the back, you know, at the, at the South Lamar. Um, he was not in my theater. It was three theaters, the secret screening, but he was on a, you know, auto uh, screening for us and shooting live. And he comes out and it, you know, it plays, he comes out and introduced it. And everyone's like, Holy shit. It plays, it plays well. People are freaking out. And he comes out and he's like very honest with the group. He's like, I was so nervous to show this to you guys because you're the cool kids. He said, he goes, you're the cool kids. You're the people I want to impress the most. And I was where you're going to tear me apart. And thank you for not. And it was so genuine and sincere. And it made me feel really fucking good because I was like, you fucking a dude. He just really was so real. He exudes a warmth. Yeah, that's uncommon and i think honestly that warmth comes through in a lot of his films and that's what leads a lot of people to reject him is that he's almost too sincere for yep. some people he's almost like if rod serling was also mr rogers yeah is that and your... again stephen king at his most sen- sentimental yeah those like those characters are like all right dude fucking pull it back yeah. a little bit calm down yeah we get it like your heart's on your sleeve that's cool but you know leave a little sap like <laughs> out of the text sir <laughs> Well, Martin, this has been great. Oh, yeah. Great to explore these films again. It's been a blast. And what do we have next for them? We are going to talk about one of my favorite series um, from the 70s to the 80s to the 90s to not the aughts. Oh, yeah, the aughts. And then... Yeah. um, Now. Yeah, and now. now. And now. It's a lot of fucking... We're going to do the Rocky movies. Yes. We're going to do all of the Rocky movies and... In specific, me and Martin are going to fight about Rocky Four because I don't like it, and he, you know, he loves Dolph. I love Dolph, and I love that movie, and we're also going to get to, obviously, the newest film, Creed Three, which comes out soon. Yeah, but you'll have to tune in next time to hear all that at Secret Handshake. See you next time. <laughs>